Hi, I'm Michael Stiddle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. Nick, this episode, we'll be talking about how political leaders are responding to protests against systemic racism on both sides of the border. We're also going to look at the Republican and Democratic national conventions and how the conservative convention stacks up. Uh, but first, I want to look at uh, the toppling of a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, obviously Canada's first prime minister and also blamed for the residential school system. Uh, I want to just play a clip of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, responding to that. Those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. Uh, so, Nick, what do you make of this response? Well, you know, the Prime Minister has a very fine line that he has to tread. On the one hand, you know, everyone knows that he's very supportive and sympathetic of diversity, of inclusion, of equality, of the Black Lives Matter movement, of reconciliation with uh, First Nations, Indigenous peoples. But uh, at, the, at the other hand, he is the Prime Minister of Canada. You know, this, uh, this act of, uh, we should just call it this act of vandalism. It's, it was intended to shock. It did shock uh, many Canadians. And uh, for those organizers and protesters that are passionate about what they believe, what they wanted to do was to capture the agenda, put a spotlight on inequality, and that there needs to be action. Uh, that said, I think the fact of the matter is, is that for the liberal core voter, they're probably sympathetic to many of the demands and plights of marginalized Canadians. And at the same time, uh, it's probably uh, a little uncomfortable when it comes to what I'll say, defacing uh, Canada's first prime minister, even though it's pretty clear that he was definitely imperfect on some public policy issues, specifically residential schools. Uh, Justin Trudeau has also come under criticism for uh possibly performative acts. Um, so as you said, uh, Nick, he's, he's come out for uh, reconciliation, uh, et cetera, but he was also at a protest, a Black Lives Matter protest where uh, he took the knee and came under criticism because it was a protest against uh, government institutions, institutionalized racism. And as the prime minister, I, I suppose, who was he protesting against if, if not himself? Uh, so if he's not taking uh, concrete actions, is this opening him up uh, to, to more criticism, uh, especially if we head into a fall election? Well, I think for some marginalized groups, and why don't we use Indigenous peoples as an example, uh, you know, the Liberals, and you know, this, I say this without judgment, the Liberals have said many of the right things that Indigenous peoples and, and the leaders of uh, Canada's uh, First Nations wanted to hear in terms of more funding, you know, the big $10 billion announcement. Uh, the, the willingness and appetite to have reconciliation. But you know, you can, you can imagine the frustration that's felt on the ground in uh, First Nations communities right across the country when they don't feel that things are getting better and there's not actual movement. And getting away from talk to action and to delivering impact on the ground is probably what's important. And that's what the Liberals and Justin Trudeau specifically has to watch out for. It's not that he's saying the right and wrong things. It's just the perception that perhaps he is saying the right things but that the impact is not being delivered on the ground. Mm -hmm. That's the gap that the Liberals have to close. Now let's look at what uh, our new Conservative Party leader, uh, Aaron O'Toole, had to say about the statue. He actually sent out a tweet, and I'm just going to read it. Uh, he said, Canada wouldn't exist without Sir John A. Macdonald. Canada is a great country and one we should be proud of. We will not build a better future by defacing our past. 
it's time politicians grow a backbone and stand up for our country. Um, so what do you make of that? Well, you know, it's quite clear that uh, the new Conservative Party leader, Aaron O'Toole, wants to look uh, strong and clear when it comes to this particular controversy and uh, doesn't want to get into uh, what I'll say, get into the race, diversity, equality arguments. Mm -hmm. Probably feels more comfortable on law and order, right? Saying that uh, he, on principle, opposes this types of violence and protest, that there's nothing wrong with people protesting, but that once you start defacing public property and specifically something like a statue of our first prime minister, that you've crossed a line in terms of what an acceptable protest is in Canada. And uh, expect him to tread a little carefully on this, because the fact of the matter is, is that for Aaron O'Toole, if he wants to have a chance to become prime minister and, uh, and win the next election, uh, what he has to do is to continue to, and he started this, is to show that he's open, that he's welcoming, that he is uh, embracing diversity. But what he also has to convey is that he understands how some of these marginalized Canadians feel, and also to put forth his own plan on how you would deal with a lot of these big issues that Canadians want to hear about. Now, uh, Aaron O'Toole ran on a uh, social conservative platform, let's say, uh, and uh, he was up against Derek Sloan and Leslin Lewis, two other social conservatives, uh, and he won, he got thousands of votes from, from social conservatives to, to push him over the edge and beat Peter McKay. Uh, and as you said, Nick, uh, he's really pushing a law and order agenda. He was asked recently about systemic racism and, and police forces on CTV's Your Morning, and this is what he had to say. I think there's racism in Canada. But as I said, when I've, I've heard law enforcement officers suggest that when that term is used without any specific detail, like what is the issue? Is there training problems? Is there an institutional problem? We have to make sure that we really get to the bottom of what we want to improve so that we can address uh, communities' concerns or lack of trust with the police, for example, without suggesting that all members of a force are somehow racist. Uh, so there you go, Nick. What do you think about that one? Well, first of all, it's been traditional for many leaders of the Conservative Party and on the Conservative side of the ideological spectrum to, uh, to defend uh, law enforcement officers, kind of side with the police because they know that uh, that, that, that has a significant amount of appeal to many uh, conservative-minded Canadians. What's interesting in O'Toole's response is that he wanted to focus on specifics to get past what I'll say the lip service that, that there's a problem and that something needs to be done into what specifically needs to be done mm -hmm. uh, in order to solve this problem. And I think when it comes to issues such as the controversies related to a number of Canadians who are asking for the defunding of police and for policing to change, uh, you know, I would expect Aaron O'Toole to say, let's be a little more specific. Uh, what needs to be changed? What needs to be changed? How would you like it to change? How is that going to impact uh, not just how our communities work, but how law and order works? Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that uh, the police should be defunded. But the fact of the matter is, is that for many communities, they need police in order to keep the peace and uh, to keep our communities safe. So reconciling those two things are probably what he's trying to do. Now, uh, Nick, he's, he's only been leader for, what, a week, two weeks now? Um, and and it's, there's some criticism that he's sort of a very similar leader to Andrew Scheer, and comes with, who was also a social conservative, and who, who comes with the same baggage. And that if we do head into a fall election, we might just see a repeat of the last one, that, that there may not be as much of an appeal 
you know, to, to middle of the road voters to, to, to get into the Conservative Party. How, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you think uh, there's, there's any, any change? Well, I think, I think it's unfair to say that any leader is the same as, as his, his or her predecessor. So I think that's a bit of an unfair criticism. I think the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the jury, for average Canadians, the jury is still out on, uh, on Aaron O'Toole. It's obvious that uh, he has a significant and strong following within among Conservative Party members, which is what catapulted him uh, into, uh, into the leadership. But you know, one of the things that I, I find quite interesting is that we track over time and, and every week, you know, the proportion of Canadians that would consider or not consider voting for the Conservatives. And that's actually a bit of a leading indicator from a research perspective. You know, people don't wake up one day saying that they're gonna vote liberal and the next day wake up and say they're gonna vote conservative. Usually there's a bit of a transition. Hmm. And when you look at that trend line, that Nanos Weekly trend line on consider voting conservative, you can see there hasn't been any significant movement. It's basically a little north of about four out of every 10 Canadians that would consider voting conservative. That's not enough to win an election. He's got to be between 45 and 50 percent at least uh, in, order to, in order to win the election and the challenge. So watch that number. If that number starts to move as people become more familiar and learn more about Aaron O'Toole, in the next, in the coming weeks and in the fall, the liberals should watch out because what it shows is that the conservatives are increasingly being on the agenda, on the political menu, so to speak, as an alternative to the, to the uh, liberals. If that number doesn't go up structurally, it's just going to be hard for Aaron O'Toole to uh, win a majority government. Uh, he could potentially snatch a minority government mm. if, he, uh, if he had a really highly targeted campaign. But uh, watch that number. We haven't seen it move. So we'll watch. Uh, maybe we'll, it'll be like the dance of the seven veils, Michael, right? <laughs> we learn more and more about, uh, about Aaron O'Toole. And I, I'd like to say public policy veils. Not mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, let's be clear on public that. Public <laughs> policy and political veils. Where people learn more. And as they learn more and see more of Aaron O'Toole, whether mm -hmm. they're open to voting conservative come the next federal election. Wow. Uh, now let's go south of the border, um, where we've had two extraordinary uh, party conventions, all virtual. Um, well, in, in the Republican case, mostly virtual, I suppose. Uh, uh, and it was against the backdrop of, of, of you know, ongoing uh, protests against systemic racism, against police brutality, anti-Black racism, where we've seen uh, a number of fatal shootings re recently. Uh, I want to start with the Republican convention, uh, uh, just like O'Toole, I suppose. They, they were really pushing a law and order uh, message and, and uh, President Donald Trump really, you know, message, pushing this message that, that a vote for the Democrats could be an end of, of peace in cities and the suburbs. Um, I just want to play a clip of, of what uh, Trump had to say. At no time before, have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas? This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. And uh, before we talk about that, I just want to also play a clip from Rudy Giuliani, a former New York mayor and his personal lawyer who also spoke at the convention. Now today, my city is in shock. Murders, shootings, and violent crime 
are increasing at percentages unheard of in the past. We're seeing the return of rioting and looting. During riots, this Democrat mayor, like others, has often prevented the police from making arrests. And even when arrests are made, liberal progressive DAs release the rioters so as not to disrupt the rioting. Well, there you go, uh, Nick. What, what do you think about, uh, about this messaging? Well, two different pages out of what's uh, now the Trump play political playbook. If, if you remember in the, uh, in the midterm elections, it was that elusive caravan of people that were threatening to come up from Mexico to the U.S. border mm. and Trump trying to stoke and fire up Americans during the midterm elections uh, in order to get them to vote against the Democrats and for him trying to look uh, strong, creating basically that, uh, that enemy kind of scenario. Uh, but that didn't work. And him doing the same thing now, basically stoking fear, playing the fear card. But you know, the one thing that Trump does understand is that uh, you know, in my 30 years of polling, one way that I can tell who's gonna win the election is just to ask who this election is about. Mm -hmm. And you know, over the last while, the focus of the American populace has been on Donald Trump and his management uh, of the uh, of the coronavirus and his numbers have suffered. You know what Donald Trump and the Republicans are trying to do is to now put a spotlight on Biden and the Democratic Party to demonize them as socialists and you know I think they even I think in some cases they even refer to someone like Bernie Sanders who is a progressive as mm -hmm. even, uh, beyond being a socialist to being a communist and leftist. Mm -hmm. But to use that type of of language in order to to fire up. And, uh, and to put a focus on the Democrats. So expect Donald Trump and the Republicans to say more sensational things to try to shift the focus from himself onto the Democrats. And if we get to November and the focus is on Biden, uh, it'll, be, it'll be more of a difficult campaign for him. But if it stays on Trump, then Trump's gonna be in trouble. I noticed, uh, speaking about the, the socialism attack uh, by Trump, that at the convention they, they kept referring to the, you know, the Chinese communist government somehow being responsible for sending the virus to the states. There's a lot of messaging like that. And, and we've also seen Trump delve into outright conspiracy theories uh, on Twitter, some of these QAnon things uh, that, that keep coming out. Is, is, is this sort of like a, a desperate attempt here or, or is he genuinely finding uh, support through these means? Well, he's not, I don't think he's growing support through these means, but there's a certain proportion of the, of the American populace uh, that uh, one may think of a, any kind of communist or former communist country, they, uh, they get a little nervous. It's kind of like, uh, it's the worst of the 1950s and McCarthyism where, uh, where, where groups are uh, demonized, targeted and uh, uh, for, for political gain. So I don't think this is a growth strategy for Trump. I think this is definitely a strategy to, to motivate, uh, motivate his core to vote. And this is where, you know, the, this crazy mail voting stuff that's uh, mm -hmm. being discussed is, is quite critical. You know, what's clear in some of the research that's been done is that uh, the Republicans and Trump supporters are much more likely to vote in person, while Democrats are much more likely to vote by mail. Uh, we, may, we may have a, a U.S. presidential election that is not decided on election night. We could have a U.S. presidential election where through the in-person votes, Trump is leading, perhaps even declares victory based on the people that vote in person, and then for him to continue to cast aspersions and question mail-in ballots. So 
He's laying track down right now. He's mm -hmm. laying track by undermining the validity or from his perspective, undermining the credibility and reliability of, of mail voting so that come election night, if he wins, if he wins the in-person vote or wins enough of the in-person votes, um, he, he might, we might be in an odd situation where he declares victory. What do you do if the sitting president declares victory, even though there are a lot of ballots that aren't counted? And mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty clear that's what he's, uh, what, that's probably one of the strategies that will be at his disposal, depending on what the election results are uh, come November. Uh, he's, he's certainly uh, doing things we've never seen a presidential candidate do before, uh, outside of the, the, the normal bounds, yeah. I, I suppose. Uh, and I, I said it was a mostly virtual convention because, of course, um, he spoke at the White House, uh, which is a pretty rare move. You know, in Canada, you're no, during a campaign, you're no longer the prime minister, you're, you're the party leader. And here we have, uh, you know, he's full out speaking in front of the White House, live in front of a crowd. I didn't see that many uh, masks, uh, face coverings for COVID-19 in the audience. His cabinet was there as well. Um, is that a good strategy for him, sort of putting the weight of, of uh, the presidency behind him? Well, it's a good strategy for any incumbent president to use the office of the presidency. You know, they, there are kind of uh, famous and infamous stories about the impact of Air Force One landing in your district mm. uh, and having the president either show up or not show up. Uh, the ironic twist here is that in many cases, the president is not welcome in some places. Uh, just because of the controversy that uh, that follows him, but you know what we are seeing is an is an administration, and uh, I should say I shouldn't say an administration, a campaign, the Trump campaign, that is basically willing to use every tool at its disposal uh, in order to try to uh, try to win the election. Uh, let's flip over to the Democratic National Convention, which was completely virtual. Uh, it, it looked like most of the messaging was was uh, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris presenting themselves with just common decency, um, which we saw uh, again and again. And uh, I just wanna play a clip of Joe Biden. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. Very Star Wars almost. <laughs> yeah. So. But you know what? What, uh, what he's trying to do is to be positive and, uh, and to try to overcome the fear card that, uh, mm -hmm. that Donald Trump is, uh, is playing and, uh, and to, to look like an alternative to Trump that will uh, heal America and try to bring America together again. And, you know, there's a, there was a very interesting survey that was done by Pew, the Pew Institute for Democracy and the People. And, you know, this particular survey kind of captured where America is at, where the parties are at, too. You know, it asked a very simple question. You know, it, it had two different kind of statements. One statement was that something to the effect of the U.S. is not perfect, but by focusing on our flaws, it weakens us. And the other statement was focusing on our flaws makes us a stronger country, right? So these are the two hypotheses that are being advanced for Donald mm. Trump, for example, to say, you know what, we don't need to live in the past that makes us weak. And, uh, and the Democrats saying, you know what, We're, we do have flaws as a nation, we need to address those flaws and it makes us stronger. 
You know, the interesting thing is that when we look at all Americans, about 71% uh, agree that focusing on the flaws makes us stronger while only 28%. But when you look at those partisan numbers, you know, that 71% pops up to 87% among Democrats. But when you, when you look at Trump supporters and leaning Trump supporters, they're evenly divided. About half of uh, people who are voting for Trump or say they're going to vote for Trump or are leaning towards Trump, half of them basically think that this focus on Black Lives Matter and all these flaws in America's history make America weak. So that probably explains why Trump is doing what he's doing because it focuses on at least half of his core vote and motivates them because they have a very dim view on the whole dialogue that's happening right now in the United States related to systemic problems that are there mm. and how they are or are not being addressed. Uh, we haven't really talked about the economy much, uh, you know, in these conventions. Uh, it, the economy is not doing very well in the States, you know, partly because of the pandemic shutdowns. Um, when does the economy become more of a major issue for the, the Biden campaign to attack uh, Trump on? I think the economy is probably going to be more of an issue in the close of the campaign in October. I think strategically, both the uh, Republicans and the Democrats want to keep their power to dry on the economy because they don't know. No one knows the state of the U.S. economy and what it will be come October, November when people vote. Mm. Because, you know, for the Democrats, if they came out swinging on the economy and saying Donald Trump wasn't doing a very good job, uh, they could take, they could deliver those punches today. But if in October the economy was looking good, they would basically be undercut by the data, mm. that would be, economic data that would be produced and, and basically deliver a, an advantage to Donald Trump. So I think for both the Republican and the Democrat campaign, the economy will not necessarily be an issue until we have more clarity on how strong the U.S. economy will be in, uh, in October, November. But watch it to be a critical factor for Americans because many Americans vote based on uh, pocketbook issues. And we also know from a polling perspective that when Americans feel good about the economy, that's usually good for incumbent presidents. It takes something pretty significant to unseat an incumbent president. Not saying it can't happen here, but it's just it's just another thing that might mm. help Donald Trump hold on to power. Uh, now, flipping back to Canada, we had our own convention here. It was the Conservative Party of, of Canada, another virtual convention. Uh, it had a major hiccup when the machines used to slice open the, the mail-in ballots uh, actually cut into some of the ballots. Uh, there was an hour, what was it, a seven-hour delay? Um, yeah, so I mean that you know we're in the middle of the summer as well. Um, how much attention do you think the conservative convention got, and and how much work does Aaron O'Toole have in front of him to to just get his name out there? Well, he's he's going to have uh, you know it's a steep it's a steep climb for any leader of the opposition uh, to to build their profile, and you know and and you know usually. People focus on the leader of the opposition when that person is in the House of Commons and they can grill the Prime Minister of the day, when that mm -hmm. person is on the, uh, on the election hustings where people can see uh, the leader every day and how he or she might perform. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very difficult, you know, in a way, by proroguing Parliament, uh, Justin Trudeau basically removed any platform that Aaron O'Toole might have in order to jumpstart his introduction to, uh, to Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for the Conservatives, you know, the key thing for them is that they have a leader and now that they can transition to, uh, to kind of rolling out their vision. And 
you know, what's going to be critical is for Aaron O'Toole to articulate how he is different from Justin Trudeau, how a conservative government would be different, and how it manages the COVID pandemic, and how it uses stimulus as a lever, its strategy for creating jobs, and what Canada would look like, whether it would, how, how different it would look like under an Aaron O'Toole premiership compared to being led by Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. Now, this is probably a good moment to plug our next episode, which will show up in about, you know, let's say two weeks. Uh, we're going to do a special opposition episode uh, just ahead of, well, the throne speech is coming up. Uh, and we just want to look into what the opposition parties will have to say about that, the challenges ahead. Uh, so please watch for that one. Um, now, I cannot let this episode end, Nick, before talking about polling in the U.S., uh, which seems to have its own challenges. I think a lot of people were surprised when Donald Trump won last time because uh, Hillary Clinton was ahead in the in the popular vote polling. Uh, of course, they have their own system there. They've got the Electoral College, et cetera. Um, do you have any advice for, for our listeners and viewers and, and what polling to watch for? What, what yeah. are the weaknesses and strengths in the U.S.? So, you know, one of the weaknesses are, is something that we talked about earlier in terms of this mail-in vote, vote. So, you know, when the uh, when the votes were counted, uh, especially at the beginning of election night that basically focused on individuals who voted that day. Um, it, it looked a little different than, uh, than the election, actual voting results. Mm -hmm. uh, the pollsters were right after all the mail-in ballots were, uh, were counted. And, and we may find out that uh, we have that similar type of phenomenon where the polling does not jive with what is counted on election night because there's still, there could be there could be tens of millions of uh, ballots that are counted by mail over over a 10-day period after the election. So uh, we may get into that. So I think uh, on election night, everyone should keep their powder dry uh, when it comes to comparing the pollsters uh, to the election results, because we might not have a clear view on what those election results are. Mm. The other thing is, is, you know, we focus on the popular support. Hillary Clinton won the popular support, but popular support, but lost the um, electoral college. So you have that kind of twist in all of this. And what's interesting, if you start to look at the details at what some pollsters are doing, is they're trying to factor what they're calling a shy Trump vote uh, to see whether he potentially could be underrepresented in some of the uh, in some of the polls. And it's it's too early to tell whether that's an appropriate approach or whether it'll work. But uh, you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing. What's interesting is, you know, when you look, there was a survey that was just released this week. Uh, it was, uh, I believe it was a USA Today Suffolk University uh, survey. It showed uh, Biden at around 50%, Trump at 43%, seven point margin. Mm. Just a few weeks ago, ahead of both of those uh, conventions, Biden was enjoying anywhere from a 10 to 12 point margin. Wow. So, you know, things are starting to narrow a little bit, but you know, what I, what I would hazard to say is that the reality is a strong lead for any party is probably four or five percentage points. Hmm. That, you know, this 10, 11, 12 percentage point advantage for the Democrats was probably really a bit of a false hope uh, that uh, it was puffed up a bit uh, just because of the, when the survey was done. So, you know, there'll be a narrative. Here's, here's one prediction. There'll be a narrative that the race is tightening up between Trump and Biden, although the reality is, 
It's really just a technical correction to the true advantage that Biden has. And mm. even if he has only a five or six point advantage, that's potentially a massive win for the Democrats come the presidential election. So uh, for all of our viewers and listeners, you may clutch your chest when you see the, the race narrowing, but the fact of the matter is it's probably more of a technical correction as to the true strength of Donald Trump and Biden, where Biden has a strong advantage, but it's just not massively 10 points. Wow, interesting. Uh, Nick, I think we'll end it there. What's your, what's your big takeaway for this episode? You know, my big takeaway on this episode is watch out for issues related to marginalized groups, Indigenous people, Black Lives Matter, that, uh, that for those Canadians that are into this particular issue, they're highly motivated, they want politicians to act, and they'll see the election as a platform to disrupt things in order to get the attention of Canadians and also to get our political leaders to move on these issues. So it's going to be a wild card from a public policy perspective and from a political perspective as uh, Canadians who want to advance this whole idea of marginalization and income inequality see the upcoming election as an opportunity to put that on the political agenda. Great. Nick, thanks very much. Thank you. And where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K, Nanos, or on the web, go to www.nanos.co to get all those stats. And I'm also on Twitter at Michael Stittle, and you can also find more about the stories that we've discussed in this episode on ctvnews.ca. Thanks for listening and watching.